Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast, where we're criminally academic. My name is Jose Sanchez. And I'm Jen Toslim. It's episode 87, and today we are hosting Dr. Alex Winter, who is speaking with us about courts and bail decisions. Alex Winter is the Chief Data Scientist for the Racial Profiling and Bias-Based Policing Investigations Unit at New York City's Civilian Complaint Review Board. She's also an affiliated research scholar at Columbia University's Insight, where she was previously a postdoctoral research scholar. Alex studies how institutional structures and actors reproduce racial and socioeconomic inequalities and how what happens in one domain refracts out to impact seemingly peripheral people and domains. She received her PhD in sociology and social policy from Harvard University. In this episode, we talked to Alex about one of her publications, co-authored with Matthew Clare, titled The Roughest Form of Social Work, How Court Officials Justify Bail Decisions. It was published in Criminology in 2023. With that being said, let's bring Alex in. Hi, Alex. Thanks for joining us today. We're excited to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. So our discussion for this episode is really going to revolve around bail and bail decisions. And so we want to begin by setting the stage and actually determining what bail is exactly and how does it work. I think most people know about bail. When you hear bail, you think about paying money to get out of jail or going to some bail bondsman and giving them like 10% so that they can help you get out of jail. But that's kind of about it, I think. So can you actually clarify the process of bail and from the moment that someone gets arrested and booked, what happens then and how is bail determined? Yeah. So I think the details of the bail process vary a little bit from state to state, but the general outline is similar. So I'll describe the bail process in the state where my co-author, Matthew Clare, and I conducted our research. And so our research is qualitative and primarily draws on in-depth interviews. So to protect the anonymity of our respondents, we refer to the state where we conducted our research as Northeast State. So in Northeast State, when a person is arrested, a bail magistrate is the first person to make an initial decision about what will happen to the person before their first court appearance. And so the magistrate decides whether the person will remain in custody while they're waiting for their first court appearance or if they'll be released with monetary bail, which I'll explain a little bit more about in a minute, or if they'll be released on personal recognizance. And so being released on personal recognizance just means that the person who has been arrested is released without monetary bail and without any other conditions and is expected to show up to their first court appearance on their own. And then at that first court appearance, the person will be formally charged or arraigned. And then at that point, the prosecutor has an opportunity to ask the court to set bail, which they typically do do. And so that triggers a bail hearing. So then during the bail hearing, the judge will first hear the prosecutor's recommendation for what they think should happen to the defendant during the pretrial phase. And then the judge will hear the defense attorney's recommendation 
And then after hearing both of those recommendations, the judge will decide ultimately what to do. And so in Northeast State, the only legally permissible goal of bail hearings is to help ensure that the defendant will return to court for later appointments. So that is the one legal goal that the judge is supposed to be working toward. And a judge has a number of options to choose from in trying to reach that goal. So they can, again, decide to release the defendant on personal recognizance. They can decide to set a monetary bail. And if they do that, at what amount to set the bail? And or they can decide to set non-financial pretrial conditions. So pretrial conditions might be things like stay away orders, you know, requiring the defendant to stay away from certain locations, GPS monitoring, regular drug screenings or counseling. And so if monetary bail is set, then if the defendant is able to post the bail or to pay the amount that was set, then they'll be released from pretrial detention and that money gets held. And then once the case is resolved, regardless of the case outcome, the money would be given back to the defendant. That's how it works in Northeast state. It's a little, can be a little bit different in other states, but that's the general idea. I should say, though, that one difference between Northeast state and in its bail process is that many other states have bail schedules that have recommended kind of bail amounts or ranges associated with different offenses. But Northeast state does not have bail schedules. So in Northeast state, judges don't have those anchors to work from when they're setting monetary bail. What you just said So that would mean that the judge has a lot of discretion. Do we see a lot? Do you know if we see like wide range? Like if someone was arrested for aggravated assault and another person with a very similar case, like is it common for their bail amounts to be drastically different or are they relatively similar? Yeah, I think they can really differ depending on a number of factors. So some of it is kind of just local norms and what judges who practice in different parts of the state might be used to. But then there are also a lot of factors that judges might consider and how much to set the bail at. So that could include a person's ties to the community, whether they have a job, whether they have family in an area, basically things that might hold them to the community that would inform the judge's impression of how much of a flight risk they might be as opposed to remaining in state. And so depending on how much of a flight risk they're perceived to be, that could really change the bail amount. Bail also is supposed to be something that defendants can afford. Of course, it's not always the case, but in theory, it should be. And so some judges do talk about trying to tailor the monetary amounts they're sending or that they're setting depending on their understanding of what different defendants might be able to afford. And so, you know, a hundred dollar bail might not mean much to some people, but to other people that would really be a lot of money and hard to come up with. So that can also be a big factor in why the amounts vary. Sorry, I know I cut you off mid-sentence before. Was there (laughs) anything else you wanted to add before? No, no worries. I was just going to add quickly that if in the event that non-financial pretrial conditions are set, what happens then is that the defendant needs to comply with them. And if they don't, then a hearing would occur at which the prosecutor or a probation officer who 
often is the office to oversee a defendant's compliance with pretrial conditions would need to establish that the violation did occur. And then it would be up to a judge to make a decision about what happens to the defendant from there. Yeah, it always seems like such a complicated process. And I so most of my work falls within the corrections arena. And I feel like bail is besides, you know, the bail reform movements that have been coming out more recently, bail just isn't given as much attention as like other parts of the criminal justice system, even just getting arrested, going through a trial, the actual prison or jail experience. But it does seem like bail and bail hearings are a really important aspect of the criminal justice system, especially when you tie it to pretrial detention. So can you tell us just a little bit about what makes bail hearings so important and so potentially life-changing for people? Yeah. So part of why they're so important is because, you know, the outcomes of bail hearings, like you said, can be hugely consequential for defendants. And so the outcomes of these hearings really determine how defendants will spend the pretrial process, which could be weeks, could be months, or in some cases could even be years. And so, for example, if a monetary bail is set that a defendant can't afford, that would mean that that defendant is spending that pretrial time in jail. And we know from work by the Prison Policy Initiative that currently there are 426 7,000 people being held in local jails in the United States who are in that pretrial phase. So they haven't been convicted of anything yet. And that's actually the majority of people being held in local jails. And that's not even everybody currently being held pretrial because there are also people experiencing pretrial incarceration in federal prisons and in a couple other types of facilities. And, you know, we also know from research that spending time incarcerated can have negative consequences across a number of life domains. But even being incarcerated pre-trial for a short amount of time, even just a couple of days can mean losing a job if you miss shifts at work. It can be disruptive for childcare responsibilities, other family obligations, other you know social obligations. And there is research showing in relation to pre-trial detention specifically that it's associated with worse mental health and with decreased employment. So those are some of the consequences of pretrial detention. Then if non-financial pretrial conditions are set, a defendant you know, wouldn't be in jail, but they would still have to abide by those conditions for the length of the pretrial process. And so the conditions you know, can vary, but let's say one of the conditions might be regular drug screenings. So, you know, for a person who has a job, who might have family responsibilities, who might rely on public transportation that isn't necessarily that reliable, and then to potentially have to go to a probation office regularly for drug screenings, that can be a really big and disruptive imposition that that person now has to manage on top of their case until the case gets resolved. But having to sit in jail because you can't afford to get out, just in, it just uh, it reminds me of, I saw this documentary a long time ago, Khalif Browder, mm-hmm. I think he had a Netflix documentary where his family couldn't afford to pay the, uh, the bail. And and I think it even came out that even if they could afford it, they had put like a violation on his probation. So they were going to release him anyways. And I 
kind of the details are, are a little fuzzy, but I believe he gets acquitted of the crime that he, that he gets a charge with is like second degree robbery. And then he ends up dying of suicide um, shortly after because of how, because he spent years in jail without even going through the trial and then having to go through solitary for a lot of that time as well. So it's like, yeah, it can. And I personally know a few people that had to sit in jail because they couldn't afford to get out. And I know that that can be tough on them, um, especially when they lose their jobs because they, they can't get out so they can't go to work. But we'll try to get to that a little bit more, especially when we start talking about your paper in just a minute. But first, wanted to maybe discuss a little bit the research that's been done on bail. And if you can maybe give us a little bit of the lay of the land when it comes to research on bail and bail decisions, you know, things like ethno-racial disparities, income disparities, or impacts on conviction outcomes, um, you know, things of that nature. And so what the research says about these things. Yeah. So I'll start with conviction outcomes. So, you know, in addition to the potential consequences of pretrial incarceration and non-monetary conditions that we were just talking about. These outcomes of bail hearings also have consequences for criminal defendants' court cases themselves. So research has found that pretrial detention increases the probability of conviction, and primarily it does that through an increase in guilty pleas. So people held in jail pretrial are more likely to plead guilty. And pretrial detention is also associated with an increased likelihood of incarceration following a conviction and with longer carceral sentences. When it comes to non-financial pretrial conditions, we actually know a lot less about their consequences. Similar conditions and consequences have been studied in the context of probation, but at least as far as I'm aware, we know a lot less about the consequences of using these types of conditions in the pretrial setting. So I think this is one area where more research is really needed, and I think something we'll talk more about later. But then in answer to the other part of your question about ethno-racial and income disparities at bail, so there's some great research on disparities in bail decisions and bail outcomes. And this work has found that, you know, legal factors like things like offense seriousness are the strongest predictors of whether monetary bail is set. But in addition to those legal factors, race, ethnicity, and socioeconomic status also matter. So after accounting for the legal factors, people who are unemployed tend to be treated more harshly than people who are employed. And Black and Hispanic defendants tend to be treated more harshly than white defendants, You know, both in terms of whether monetary bail is set and then also in terms of the amount of bail. And so, you know, given the large numbers of people who are held pretrial because they can't afford to pay bail, and then also the consequences of that pretrial detention for case outcomes, these kind of ethno-racial and income disparities can end up carrying over into the case outcomes themselves. And so there is research actually showing that inequalities in bail outcomes contribute later on to inequalities in conviction and sentencing outcomes. So there's this process of cumulative disadvantage by race, ethnicity, and by income that's occurring along the criminal court process, beginning arguably with policing and the initial arrest, but then kind of getting reinforced at bail. 
Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned cumulative disadvantage because that's like a point that I just try to really emphasize in all my undergrad classes, especially like you said, I would agree with you and your arguably um, statement of starting at policing and carrying all the way through. But All right. So let's get into your paper. It's titled The Roughest Form of Social Work, How Court Officials Justify Bail Decisions, published in Criminology in 2023. And at the top of the episode, we give a more in-depth description. But just to summarize it here, you conducted 104 interviews with judges, prosecutors, and public defenders to explore how they justify bail decisions and resulting pretrial outcomes. The first question we really like to ask people is, what was the motivation behind writing this study? What was the gap that you were trying to fill? Yeah, so this study is part of a larger project that my co-author Matthew Claire and I started in grad school. And we were interested in court official decision making. And so how court officials make decisions at different phases of the criminal court process. So not just bail, but also how they go about jury selection, how they make sentencing decisions. And we were also interested in how court officials think about racial disparities in the criminal legal system and what, if anything, they try to do to address those disparities when they're making their decisions. So to answer those questions, we started, you know, going to courtrooms and sitting and observing, trying to familiarize ourselves a bit with the processes, and then also interviewing court officials about their decision making. And we'll just add quickly for any grad students who might be listening, you know, I think the experience of doing research with a fellow graduate student was really wonderful. It was really fun to be learning together and to also kind of push each other at times to make the work better. I think we have each have different strengths and weaknesses. And so I highly recommend working with fellow grad students if you're able to. But anyway, as we were interviewing court officials, we noticed that really without having or without us bringing it up, a lot of the court officials we were interviewing started to talk about and seemed to really be preoccupied by the different types of social marginality that defendants often experience and talked about conditions of social marginalities like poverty and treated mental illness as contributing to to defendants' presence in court. And they were kind of struggling with what to do about that. And so we thought that that was really interesting and a core finding that we wanted to write about. And then bail became a great context really for sort of digging deeper into that finding and seeing in a deeper, more analytic way how it plays out in our data. So in this paper, you introduce a term that you coined liminal guilt. Can you tell us more about what liminal guilt is? Yeah, liminal guilt um, is the term that we use to describe defendants' status at bail hearings. So we're definitely not the first ones to point this out. There's a long line of research that shows that court officials often assume that defendants are guilty even pre-trial. So defendants are often assumed to be kind of factually guilty. But at the same time, in the United States, we have a legal presumption of innocence, right? So defendants are not legally guilty, even though they might be assumed to be in practice, legally they're innocent. And so we 
refer to this sort of in-between position that defendants occupy as one of liminal guilt. So liminal guilt is just the kind of the shorthand that we use to denote this assumed guilt, but legal innocence. I'm going to have to use that word. (laughs) I've always wondered if there was a term for that. Um, All right. So in your study, you draw on and build or you draw from and build on focal concerns theory. And this is something that we've talked about on the podcast before, but it's been a while, probably like two years or so. Jose, correct me if I'm wrong, but so can you just walk us through what focal concerns theory is? Give our audience kind of a refresher. Yeah. So focal concerns theory is a theory of court official decision-making. And it was developed by a number of people, including Daryl Steffensmeyer, Stephen DeMuth, John Kramer, Kathy Streifel, Jeffrey Ulmer. And focal concerns theory basically posits that there are three primary concerns that guide court officials' decision-making at sentencing. So the first is offenders' blameworthiness. So or how much can offenders be blamed for their criminalized behavior? Um, so that could include considerations of the severity of the offense or of an offender's specific role in the offense. So for example, you know, were they carrying a gun themselves or were they in a car with other people who had guns on them, but they themselves didn't have a gun? So that's kind of the first concern. The second concern is protecting the community from crime. And the third concern has to do with practical constraints and consequences. So things like organizational constraints of the local criminal legal system. Is there room in the local jail or is it already overcrowded? And also concerns related to the offender. So any health conditions maybe that may be exacerbated by spending time in jail or things like that. And so we were interested in this theory because most research on bail is quantitative. And a lot of this research relies on this vocal concerns theory of court official decision making to really contextualize and interpret their findings. But this is kind of where the concept of liminal guilt that we just talked about then comes in. So at sentencing, defendants have been convicted. And so they are now considered to be legally guilty. But at bail, like we talked about, the presumption of innocence is still in play and defendants occupy this liminal guilt status. And so this raised the question for us of whether focal concerns theory or if focal concerns theory was developed in relation to sentencing after defendants have been convicted, how applicable is the theory to bail decisions that are taking place prior to any conviction? So you know, not to say that we don't think it's applicable at all or that it shouldn't matter, but we were interested in what the similarities and differences might be in court officials' concerns at these two different phases of the criminal court process. Yeah, really interesting, especially when you break it down with this concept of liminal guilt, where it's like there's this assumption that they're guilty, but legally they're not. So where do their focal concerns lie? Another kind of key concept that you touch on introduced by Lara Millen and Van Cleave is hybridized social control in the criminal justice system. Can you elaborate? I know another definition here, but can you elaborate more on this concept and how you apply it to bail? Yeah. So yeah, Armando Lara Milan and Nicole Gonzalez Van Cleave developed 
This concept of hybridized social control that they describe as a hybridization of contemporary forms of punishment that kind of blends a concern for individuals' social needs with the concerns of managing criminal risk. So in their study, they talk about this hybridization in the context of felony adjudication in criminal court and a jail intake unit. But this blending of kind of criminal risk management and social welfare provision has also been shown in other contexts too. So, you know, for example, Forrest Stewart writes about rehabilitative policing where police officers use the threat of arrest to incentivize individuals to use homeless shelters and other social services that the officers believe would be helpful. And it happens in problem-solving courts as well. So there's this kind of joining of criminal risk management by criminal legal system actors who are dictating what individuals can and can't be doing, but at the same time, kind of providing social services or some social services within that system. And so in our interview data, we found that the court officials we interviewed also reported using this hybridized social control at bail. So in addition to sometimes setting monetary bail, many of the court officials we interviewed reported requesting, in the case of prosecutors and public defenders, or imposing them in the case of judges, different types of non-financial pretrial conditions. And that could include GPS monitoring or stay away orders, but it could also include things like drug or alcohol screenings or counseling. So I think we'll get into more how court officials thought about this, but the court officials were really using these conditions to manage what court officials understood to be risks, whether it was a risk that the defendant wouldn't show up for their next court appointment or a risk that the defendant would engage in criminalized behavior. And so they were using these conditions to manage those perceived risks while also providing defendants or mandating that defendants use these certain types of services. Okay, so we want to start getting into your results, but before we do, there's something I wanted to ask because you mentioned this a couple of minutes ago and you also mentioned this in your paper that most of the studies in this area tend to be quantitative, not necessarily qualitative. And so my first thought was, well, I guess that kind of makes sense because I'm not sure how easy some of these people are to access. So I guess I just wanted to ask you like how you kind of got the ball rolling and kind of get some of, you know, like judges, prosecutors to actually talk to you. Yeah, I think you're right that a big part of why there isn't more qualitative research with court officials is because it is a difficult population to access. And so I guess we had two kind of starting points. One of the first things we did was just started going to courtrooms and just showing up and watching and then writing down the names of the court officials who we saw and trying to find them afterward and sending follow-up emails and saying like, hi, like we're students. We saw you in court, if you would be willing to chat with us. And so we had one or two more kind of informational interviews at the beginning to help get the ball rolling. And then we also met with local 
law school professors who were also able to recommend a couple names to us of people who might be open to being interviewed who we could contact. And so once we started interviewing people, then we snowball sampled from there. And, you know, everyone we talked to, we asked them, who else would you recommend we talk to? And can we use your name when we reach out? But then another key thing was that we realized because the people we were interviewing were government employees, their email addresses largely were formulaic. And so once we found figured out what the formula was, <laughs> it became a lot easier to email people yeah. and to continue to bug them. <laughs> and so we <laughs> were able to use that formula to actually email all their court certified in the state into sort of lower and upper courts. And so we actually use that formula to just contact every upper court judge in the state. And so it was this kind of combination of purposive and snowball sampling. And then we, and we just kept going until we felt like we weren't hearing anything new from any of our respondents anymore, that people were starting to repeat themes and ideas that we had heard already. And so we felt like we had reached saturation. It's really cool, especially as two grad students, to be able to do something like this. I'm sure it felt like a big undertaking, but I'm sure it was also very cool to be doing and learning and hearing from them. So. Yeah, I think we were probably somewhat naive when we started you, which maybe helped or is allowed us to undertake this project. Yeah. We were like, oh yeah, we'll just interview a lot of court officials, which turned out to be multiple years of recruiting and interviewing court officials. But I don't think either of us had a conception that that's what it would turn into when we first started. So I maybe in that sense, our naivete helped us. <laughs> yeah, because it was roughly three years or so, if I remember correctly from your paper. Yeah. And then anytime anyone like finds out that I tend to do you know, gang research and interview gang members. The first thing they always tend to ask is, how do you get information out of them? And I'm always like, you'd be surprised at how willing they are to actually talk and tell you things. Like, does that hold true for like court officials as well? I think for some people it did. And there might have been some variation depending on their professional roles. So I think in general, public defenders were tended to be more open than prosecutors. Judges really varied. But I think, again, our being students was probably helpful in that we really took the position of, you know, we're here to learn from you and we are just interested in what you have to say and interested in your thoughts. And so I think that was helpful. And we did notice there were also, I think, some gender dynamics in terms of especially after like following the interview the types of questions that respondents would like ask me when we were just chatting versus the questions they would ask Matt and yeah and then we also were interested in and because I'm white female and Matt is a black male and so we were also interested in whether there were and we were asking questions explicitly about racial disparities and so we were also interested in the possibility of racial dynamics and so once we introduced those questions on racial disparities we largely conducted interviews that matched on race, but we did also do some kind of cross-race interviews and didn't 
really find big or didn't think we really detected big differences in the types of themes and ideas people were willing to talk to each of us about. But that was something we were concerned might be the case. Yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, But yeah, it sounds like you handled it really well. We did our best. We tried. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, now let's start actually getting into your Mm -hmm. results. So the first major theme that you discussed was recognizing the marginality of the defendants. Can you tell us more about what your key findings were regarding this theme? Yeah. So kind of as I mentioned earlier, the initial germ of this paper was noticing that a lot of the court officials we interviewed seemed to be preoccupied by defendant social marginality. And so when we cleared our data systematically, we found that most of the court officials in our study described aspects of defendant social marginality as leading to their criminal court involvement, not always in relation to bail, but at some point in the interview. And so, you know, we interviewed 52 judges, 27 public defenders, and 25 prosecutors. And of those people, 33 of the 52 judges, 24 of the 27 public defenders, and 18 of the 25 prosecutors talked about defendant social marginality as contributing to their court involvement. And when I say social marginality, I'm referring to really four types of marginality that our respondents talked about. So substance use, poverty, racism, and untreated mental illness. And so judges and public defenders and prosecutors really all noted these as pervasive problems among defendants. And I thought I'd give just two examples of what that looks like. So I thought the data is really powerful. So one of the prosecutors we interviewed said, so we have cases that are based on people being a jerk and we have cases based on people having substance abuse issues. And I would say 10% are people being a jerk and 90% are substance abuse issues. Another one of the judges we interviewed said to us, you know, we, meaning the courts, manage the chaos at the intersection of the human condition and the law. So court officials recognized some of the social problems, at least, that the defendants before them are up against, and at the same time also expressed frustration at the limitations of the tools that they have available to them as court officials to address those problems. So another prosecutor we interviewed talked about her frustration at feeling sort of trapped. And so she said that she doesn't feel like she has enough resources to address mental health issues, for example, in any meaningful way. So she felt like incarcerating somebody who might be using drugs or alcohol to self-medicate, for example, if they have an untreated mental illness is you know, not a good solution. But at the same time, she didn't feel like she could not do anything about it. And defense attorneys had this frustration too. So, you know, one of the defense attorneys we interviewed said that he would estimate that about a third of his cases are domestic violence cases and another third are cases involving substance misuse. And he told us, you know, his quote was, we're set up to find out if someone broke a law. We're not set up to deal with the deep society issues of domestic violence and substance abuse, but no one else wants to deal with it. So dump it on the courts. So, There is this recognition of defendant social marginality among the court officials we interviewed, 
And frustration at having these issues basically dumped on the courts, which are set up to determine whether someone broke the law, not to be social service agencies. But then at the same time, some of the court officials we interviewed did report attempting to use the limited tools that they do have available to them and that are available to them at bail to address defendant social marginality. Yeah, it's cool hearing the quotes. I like that you brought those in. And so often I feel like we talk about almost this like misrecognition, like these actors aren't acknowledging that there are mental health issues or substance use. And so to hear that it was so prevalent in your pretty large sample, I would say, of qualitative interviews, that's really kind of refreshing to hear. <laughs> Still deeply problematic, obviously, because of the, you know, the problems that they're talking about. But it's nice to hear that they are recognizing them, even if they don't have the tools that they need to appropriately deal with them. But they're grappling with it. So so your second major theme is the actual justification the court actors gave for their bail decisions. So what were your key findings here? What were the justifications being used? Yeah, so we found that court officials employ, you know, three primary justifications at bail. And those are ensuring that defendants return to court, preventing crime and lessening harm. And we found that which of these justifications court officials employ is structured by their professional roles in court, so as prosecutors, defense attorneys, or judges, but also by what they understand to be appropriate. And different people have different opinions about that. So I'll talk a little more about each of the justifications and what types of bail recommendations or decisions they do or don't enable. So the first justification, ensuring defendants return to court, that's you know the legal goal of bail hearings in Northeast state. So it's not surprising that court officials talked about it. And defense attorneys, you know, they of course know that this is the legal purpose of bail hearings. And so they understand that this is the objective that sort of sets the parameters within which they need to advocate for their clients. But they didn't report returning to court themselves as a justification. But almost all of the judges and a little more than half of the prosecutors that we interviewed reported this justification. And for judges and prosecutors, sometimes this justification meant setting or recommending monetary bail as an incentive to keep someone coming back to court. And other times it meant setting or recommending non-financial pretrial conditions. And so the conditions were used as a way to manage the risk that a defendant wouldn't return for their next court appointment. So for example, one of the judges we interviewed said that she sometimes sets an alcohol-free condition if that will give her, quote, the best hope that the person will return. The second justification, preventing crime, is not a legally sanctioned purpose of bail hearings in Northeast State. But about one quarter of the judges we interviewed and about half of the prosecutors we interviewed reported using this justification when they were making their bail recommendations or decisions and reported trying to prevent future offending by defendants. And so, again, this sometimes meant setting or recommending monetary bail. But for the preventing crime justification, 
this meant setting or recommending a monetary bail amount that would in effect result in someone's pretrial incarceration. So one example of this in our data was a prosecutor talking about a defendant who was unhoused. And so the court might have otherwise used home confinement and GPS monitoring to monitor the defendant in an effort to prevent a perceived risk of crime. But because the person didn't have stable housing, the court didn't think that the GPS monitoring would be enough to keep the community safe. So the defendant ended up being held on bail basically because of their unhoused status and because of assumptions about their possible criminality. But more often in our data, the preventing crime justification enabled the use of non-financial pretrial conditions. So... In an example of this, one of the judges said to us, you know, maybe if my fear is that they'll continue to use alcohol and this is an alcohol related incident and it has led to problems and they'd rather come back to court than picking up new cases. I can ask them if they'd consider being released without bail, but they agree to drug testing or alcohol measures to determine if they're using alcohol. If they agree to those conditions, then I can release them on bail. So prosecutors and judges saw managing Defendant social marginality and especially possible alcohol or drug use or untreated mental illness as a way of helping to mitigate the risk that defendants wouldn't show up in court, but also as a way of helping to mitigate the risk that defendants may commit new offenses if they're not held in jail pre-trial. And then the third justification we found was lessening harm. And this is where things, I think, maybe get a little more interesting. So this was a justification that was employed by about a third of the judges we interviewed and half of the public defenders. And it was a justification that took two forms. So the first was lessening harms that the criminal legal system might cause defendants during the pretrial phase. And then the second was lessening societal harm. So Taking the first secondary justification, lessening criminal legal system harm, that was the more common one, but it played out in different ways for different court officials. So for some court officials, this meant trying to really prevent pretrial incarceration, which they viewed as uniquely punitive and uniquely bad and as a bad outcome for defendants. And so the way this was often done was by setting or requesting non-financial pretrial conditions as an alternative to detention. So judges would set these conditions when they didn't want to set a bail amount that the defendant wouldn't be able to afford, but they also didn't feel comfortable releasing the defendant on their own recognizance. And so they would set these conditions instead. Similarly, if public defenders knew that the judge wasn't going to release their clients on personal recognizance, but they wanted to avoid having their clients stuck in jail with you know, a bail amount that they wouldn't be able to afford, they might request conditions as an alternative to monetary bail. But you know, I mentioned that the secondary justification of lessening criminal legal system harm played out in different ways for different court officials. And so another way it played out was actually the reverse. So some court officials actually tried to avoid using non-financial pretrial conditions. And for public defenders and a couple of judges, 
they were worried about these conditions setting defendants up to fail. So one judge told us, you know, quote, who will make sure that this person goes through the program? Who will make sure this person comes to court? How will they get a ride? If I order them to stay home, is that a safe place to be? Absolutely. The likelihood that they can be successful on probation or pretrial release depends on large part on what resources they have. So these judges and public defenders were worried that these non-financial pretrial conditions might place unrealistic burdens on defendants that might further their social marginality if defendants aren't able to comply with the conditions. And then we also found a few judges who avoided these non-financial conditions for another reason. So going back to defendants' liminal guilt status that we talked about earlier, These judges didn't think that these conditions were appropriate while defendants were still presumed innocent by law. So one judge said to us, I shy away from thinking we're in social work. So it's not that these judges weren't, you know, aware of defendant social marginality or didn't think that services might be helpful, but they didn't think that it was the place of the courts to be requiring defendants to engage with services while they're still presumed to be innocent. And then finally, this brings us to a secondary justification of the lessening harm justification, which was lessening societal harm. So this justification was only used by judges, but these judges explicitly reported viewing bail as an opportunity to provide social services that defendants likely they didn't think would be able to access if they weren't court involved. And so this justification, unlike the others, doesn't enable monetary bail, but it does enable non-financial pretrial conditions again. And what's unique about this justification is that it views mitigating defendant social problems as a goal unto itself, rather than viewing these efforts as an avenue toward ensuring you know, one of the other goals, whether it's return to court or preventing crime. And I should say that only two of the judges we interviewed expressed this justification, but we think that's probably a conservative finding. And one of the reasons that we think that is that public defenders mentioned that there are judges who take this lessening societal harm approach. And so one public defender told us, you know, quote, a lot of times judges will say drug and alcohol testing when there aren't any allegations related to drugs and alcohol. So judges, public defenders observe judges just imposing the these conditions because they think it may be good for defendants. And another public defender told us that she tailors then her bail recommendations accordingly. So she said, there are some judges who are social work oriented judges. They like to see everyone get treatment for their problems and do that stuff. Those judges are good judges to pitch pretrial conditions and that kind of thing. So even though only two judges of those who we interviewed expressed this justification, it seems like it might be more widespread and that it can definitely influence the recommendations that public defenders are making. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you think some of them just wouldn't want to say that as a justification since it's not like a legally appropriate reason for bail? Yeah, it's definitely possible. And I think, you know, similar to any interview data collection, there's always the possibility of social desirability bias and of respondents not being fully forthcoming. I think, you know, in the case of 
court officials, we do know that presumably what court officials are telling us because they're telling it to us, they view as legitimate and as legitimate reasons for doing what they're doing. And I think that, you know, in the court setting especially matters because of the nature of the criminal court setting where decisions do need to be justified. And even if they don't always need to be justified, the first time there's always the risk of appeal and of a decision being dug into further. And so that legal reasoning is a key part of the process. And so in that respect, I think the understandings that are and reasonings that are viewed to be legitimate are the often are of interest, but still could understate or not fully reveal everything that's going on, of course, in court officials' head, whether it's conscious or or not conscious. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Okay, given everything we've talked about so far, what are some of the implications that come out of out of your work in this paper? Yeah, so I think our work has I think our work has implications for research and also for public conversation that we think is needed. So I'll start with the research implications. So first, you know, we started talking about what existing research tells us about bail. And there is a lot of great and important research about bail decisions and outcomes, but more research is needed on the use of non-financial pretrial conditions and their consequences. So a lot of the research on bail distinguishes between whether someone is in or out of jail during the pretrial process. And that's, of course, a really important distinction given the many negative consequences of spending even one day in jail. But the results of our work show that among the people who are out of jail during the pretrial process, there can still be a lot of variation in how much freedom they're allowed or conversely, you know, in how much social control they're experiencing, even though they're not in jail. And so we think our results really show that we need more large-scale quantitative research on the use of non-financial pretrial conditions, you know, how often they're used, when they're used, for whom they're used, and also what their consequences are. So, and then in researching their consequences, we need a better understanding of their average consequences, but also whether their consequences differ for different social groups. So, for example, you know, for reasons we've mentioned, it might be easier for someone with more resources to comply with non-financial pretrial conditions. So the conditions might have different consequences for people who are socially situated differently, who have access to better or worse transportation options, for example. So the first implication is that we need more research on non-financial pretrial conditions. We also talked earlier about the focal concerns theory of court officials, of court official decision making and how it was developed in relation to sentencing decisions, but that court officials might have different concerns at bail. And so our results do, I think, add some nuance to the concerns that researchers should consider when analyzing decision making at bail. So, you know, I won't go through all of them now, but just in relation to the first focal concern, for example, about blameworthiness. You know, in line with that, 
concern, our findings do show that court officials understand defendants to occupy marginal statuses that are often assumed to be criminogenic and that court officials feel they need to manage or control, often in our case using non-financial pretrial conditions, if not monetary bail. But we also find that small group of court officials who push back against using those forms of social control. And, you know, these court officials argue that defendants' legal innocence should protect them from perceptions of blameworthiness at the bail stage and from these pretrial conditions, which is different from the sentencing stage when a person has been found or has pleaded guilty. So... More broadly, I think in addition to kind of adding nuance to how focal concerns theory should be applied at bail, our results underscore that researchers should be mindful of potential differences between different phases of the criminal court process and that court officials' reasons or justifications for their decision-making might you know, differ and include different aspects at different phases of trial. And then... In terms of the implications of our work for public conversation, you know, our results showed the justifications that court officials use for their bail decisions sometimes do, but sometimes don't align with the justifications that are legally permissible Mm -hmm. or that according to the law they should be employing. And so we think there needs to be more conversation about the aims and the risks and the consequences of various pretrial decisions and outcomes and really around sort of the social function that bail hearings and bail outcomes are playing in our society. Awesome. awesome. I think your work's really very cool. And I agree that we need a lot more work on this area and I think this is one of the first papers I've really heard of discussing like non-financial bail. And so just that alone, you know, if it is more prevalent than I guess I was thinking in my head, then just the fact that there's not that much on it, for sure. We absolutely need more on that. And then, yeah, public discourse. Bail has been in the headlines, you know, more recently. So to have more conversations about the findings from your study and other elements of bail, I think is critical. Well, those are the main questions that we had for you today. Thank you so much for speaking with us. And if people have any questions, where can they find you? Probably my website is the easiest place. It's alexalixwinter.org. And my email address is on my website. So yeah, I'm happy for, I'm happy to chat more with anyone who's interested. Perfect. And we'll link it in the episode description well thank you again we really enjoyed uh speaking with you thank you for taking time out of your day to speak with us thank you so much thank you for having me the criminology academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts make sure to follow us on twitter facebook and instagram at the crim academy if you're on apple podcasts please rate review and subscribe Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share the Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.